This is an Audio Wool original. This episode of Fright Day is brought to you by Spring Heel Jack Coffee. You need great coffee. Jack delivers. Visit springheeljack.coffee. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash frightday. I don't know, man. At this point, I'm just like, I'm really, I was up until 4.30 and got up at like 9. Just just powering through today. Doing okay. I mean, I'm proud of you. I've been trying to explain the Holocaust to my daughters. That's been... All right. Well. They just keep saying, I just don't understand the blonde hair, blue eyes thing. Well, one of them does, the other one doesn't. Oh, no. Oh, no. Actually, I guess she has green eyes, so it really doesn't count either. It is Fright Day. I'm your host, Ooh. Byron. I surprise you. I, I, no, I just liked it. The loss of a child is an undeniable tragedy. But what if there is a way, an anti-Christmas miracle of sorts, that could shove a soul in a belly of a pregnant woman? That'd be something else. And we'll talk about it. <sighs> Tonight, as we review Justin G. Dick's Anything for Jackson, and in 1952, two stranglers were terrorizing London, and while one relented after five brutal days, the other continued luring victims into his residence for years to come. One a dense poisonous fog, the other a ghoulish man. We'll be focusing on the latter as we discuss John Reginald Halliday Christie, in a holiday-ish edition of Byron's Serial Corner, I'm joined tonight by Kelly. Yup. And Sam can't make it because... He's uh, hitting the streets with his snow-blowing job. Oh, what a, what a great gig. And happy horror holidays, boils and ghouls, and hope y'all doing well. We're almost through this, Kelly. I mean, it's, it saddens me that that's the way you look at it, but yes, okay. Hear what happened to uh, the old friends across the pond? None of them get to have parties now. Wait, excuse me? No parties. What are you talking about? No parties for you. Oh, uh, Boris said, hey, bitches, no indoor holiday gatherings. Pull your heads out of your asses. He used the B word? Boris? Well, I mean, it's a different one. I mean, he didn't use the bitch word. He used the Boris word. Well, I mean, yeah, I hope you guys are finding some way to enjoy the season this year. Uh... I might have picked the wrong year to ruin a holiday like I traditionally do, Kelly. You're going to be a Scrooge. and a Scrooge? You might be a Scrooge after what I have to tell you. Oh, God. We'll determine that. Yeah, I remember that we discussed this. This was supposed to be a serial killer that was pretty Kelly safe, and then you... It, it, they usually start Kelly safe, and then I just... There's always something in there. Yeah, well... But we got a lot to talk about, Kelly, so what do you say we... Uh, what? We got what those, are we talking about? We've got to open the doors early because we got to close. We got those those uh, holiday hours at the. Oh yeah, it's time for staff picks. They say so much, but they never tell you if it's any good. Terrible movie with E.T.'s mom in it. The Howling Horror, straight ahead. 
I'm I'm falling apart. I'm a, I'm a disaster. You are falling apart. You need a hug, Byron. I will get one soon. I was potentially exposed to... No, you to... because you can't see your parents or I anybody know. you care about because now you might be infected. Yeah, potentially exposed to COVID-19 one more time right before the holidays. Doing great. I didn't stay up all night. Love it. I was going to pick a Christmas horror film for staff picks this time, but... I feel like there's only so many times I can bring up the original Black Christmas or Inside or P2, even ATM. Oh, God, there are so many. That's like not even a. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the obvious the ones and in the apocalypse. We've covered all the good ones. Rare exports. Have we covered all the good ones? I think we I have. I don't know that I'd agree with that statement. Well, Krampus, of course. Since tonight's featured film is streaming exclusively on Shudder, I thought I'd pick something from their catalog and uh, in digging in. I found a holiday moral horror mystery that I had completely forgot about. Really? A little film called Body. Okay, I can't eat anymore. I'm dying. I'm going to bed. Come on, let's not go to sleep at 9.30. Nothing is open for the holidays. I have something in mind. I'm telling you guys, this place is sick. Wow. Are you sure they're not home even though their cars are here? Oh my god. This is unbelievable. You ain't seen shit. Hey, Callie. Why are all the photos in here of Asian people? Okay, the jig is up. This isn't my uncle's house. What was that? Run. Hey, what's going on here? I got you. Oh my god. not breathing. I'm gonna call an ambulance. You can't. What are we gonna do? We can't just sit here. He's dead. So he can't really tell his side of the story, can he? <clears throat> you guys ready? It's not right. That's how we get out of this. What exactly do you want to do, Mel? He's really dead, isn't he? This doesn't change anything. It only makes it worse. This changes everything. We're almost finished. I didn't want any of this. 911, what is your emergency? You guys stop it! We're leaving right now. Kelly! Really? You don't remember that? I don't one, like huh? it. What? No. I don't like it. I know it. A night out turns deadly when three girls break into a seemingly empty mansion. Written and directed by Dan Burke and Robert Olson. We saw, well, actually, I think I saw this movie without you and Sam at the first Stanley Film Festival. We covered it in episode 55 of the podcast. Why would you do that? Why would you see anything without us? I think you guys were sleeping. It was an, it was an early morning on the last day. So you guys were busy uh, oh, okay. enjoying our haunted room at the hotel. It was. It's a great little yeah. mumble horror. I love the cast. It starts one of my favorite horror crushes, Helen Rogers. And, you know, it's got a bonus facet in. I don't want to talk too much about the plot because it's a twisty little mystery. History. Oh, I love twists. I had a lot of fun with this. So if you haven't seen Body, track it down and watch it. Where might one track it down? I have not, I just said it's on Shutter. Oh, sorry. I was listening not to you. That's fantastic. the way that you listen not to me. In the new year, let's think about those resolutions, all right? Sure. Okay. Kelly, what, what, what have you been watching? Well, I've been watching a lot of stuff, actually, because I'm kind of going through. So, you know, we have a mutual friend that is quite the 
film consumptor. Mm-hmm. Is that the right word? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a word. That's consumptor? Consumer. Yeah. Consumptor. Consumer. I don't know. What, I feel like consumptor is a word, but I'm not sure that that's what it means. Yeah, I'm unsure. Anyhow, we have a mutual friend, and I was getting some movie recommendations from him because, you know, about this time of year, I always start getting regretful that, like, all I've watched is horror. Mm-hmm. But I was interested that when he gave me his votes about the best movies from the last year, there were a few that landed on that list that were indeed horror there was one that he said could be considered horror so i watched it um it's got weird parts in it it does have ufos <laughs> i would love to know what the name of the film is baccarat so i need Bacurau? if you're Bacurau? if you're gonna talk about a film baccarat that Bacurau. It's Portuguese. I can't help it. How do you spell it? B-A-C-U-R-A-U. Tell me about Bacurau? Uh, I mean... Bacurau? See, look at You're doing it too. See? It's not simple at all. So it's classified as an adventure, a horror, and a mystery. It's Brazilian subtitles, essential, obviously. But it's supposed to be just out of this world amazing. Hell of a rotten tease score. It's even got a good score on uh, IMDb. I'm halfway through it. I need somebody to explain to me what's going on. Not just because you forgot the subtitles? or No, no, no. I've been watching the subtitles, and I've done a lot of, like, reverse... Wait, what? Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. There is this little town. It takes place in, like, the near future. So, like, n- nothing looks futuristic, but it's supposed to be in the future. Remote town. Baccarat. Bakuro. Baccarat. They don't say the name of the film in the movie at some point? They do. They say it very quickly, and they say it with, uh, obviously, Brazilian accent, which is, I don't understand. Wow. Okay. Right. Obrigada. I can say that. The matriarch of this family passes away. She's like a matriarch of the whole village, really. And then weird stuff starts happening, like the town disappears from Google satellite images and stuff. Hmm. Like, suddenly the town's just not there. Now they're seeing really weird ufos like in the middle of the day strange okay and i'm trying to figure out what's going on but it is supposed to be an adventure horror and mystery so there's got to be it's gonna be good i just am real confused by it so anybody who's watched it and can offer some spoiler free two cents or i guess by the time you listen to this it's okay if it has spoilers because i will have watched the rest of it by then completed it yeah 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 it's good though i mean it's if you look it up the artwork for the poster is even really cool Obviously, I don't know the actors. I'm not super familiar with Brazilian film, but it is much less depressing than City of God, which was the last major Brazilian film that I remember watching. Oh, that's a classic. It's a very heavy film. (sighs) Great movie. Yeah. Gut-wrenching. This one just seems super interesting so far, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. So that's my staff pick. Those Brazilian UFOs, they're not as nice as the ones that we report in the United States. And now it's time to push folks out into the cold winter weather because we're closed. Oh, God, here we go. Ah, uh, yeah, it's time to empty my brain. Trust and me, you'd rather be crawling through the snow than listening to the story <laughs> that's about to come. Why would you just tell them that right at the beginning of this edition? The Byron Serial Corner. Fire emergency. Hey, they found the bodies of at least three young boys. Six more bodies under the John Gacy house. And one longtime acquaintance describes Dahmer as one weird dude. Stay tuned for Byron Serial Corner. <sighs> All right. It's, 
like scale of one to ten, how bad is this? You'll be, be fine, Byron. You will be absolutely fine. I, you say that no matter what. Yeah, I know because that's the only thing I can do. That's the only course of action I got. Okay. December, nineteen thirty-nine. In the days approaching Christmas, as a bitter cold whispered outside, a family sat around the breakfast table, bacon, scrambled eggs, toast. The father sat hunched over the day's newspaper, filling out a puzzle. Mother at the stove, stirring eggs in a pan. A quiet lull in conversation was shattered with a question. Something that's on the minds of most kids during this time of year, even today. Christmas presents. Hey dad, I bet you'll never guess what I got you for Christmas. <laughs> the old man, breaking his gaze, cocked his head back towards the ceiling with a look of desperation on his face. A new furnace. Furnace. An ironic wisecrack that was well-received by the room due to his reputation for being one of the most feared furnace fighters in northern Indiana. With only mere minutes left before being forced to leave the table for school, the oldest son, on tender hooks about what he would say next, could feel the Christmas noose beginning to tighten. A question that both excited and terrified him was shot in his direction. What would you like for Christmas? Now, what he said in response certainly wasn't important, the request was met with reasonable resistance. You may get hurt or something like that. And although... You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> slightly more somber, breakfast continued, and the old man went out to start the family car. But something was wrong. During the night, the vehicle had frozen up. While filling up a large pot with warm water, the father turned and shushed his family. Beyond the quiet sounds of a radio, he heard something. It was coming from the basement. A vent whose purpose was to provide invisible comfort and warmth was emitting something much uglier. A black cloud of smoke crept in like an unwanted guest as the sounds downstairs grew louder. It's a clinker! The father grabbed his gloves and stepped into the basement, a black cloud welcoming him, patting his back on the way down. Thirteen years after the fictionalized accounts that I've just described, based on the semi-autobiographical accounts of Gene Shepard, and almost 4,000 miles away on the other side of the pond. Oh, God, that was going in such a good direction. Before you go 4,000 miles away, can I tell you something really ironic? Uh, uh, sure, of course. Do you know why I was 10 minutes late to call you? Why is that? I was literally putting the leg lamp up in our window. I'm not even kidding. A major award. A string of unfortunate events would transpire over five days in December 1952 that, when dissipated, would leave between 10,000 and 12,000 residents dead, over 100,000 more sick. Citizens strangled by the exhaust of poor fuel meant to keep them warm, capped by a weather anomaly which filled the city faster than a Christmas story kitchen. And surviving inside this tragedy, a soft-spoken, tall, thin, pathetic man who had been luring women into his home under the guise of assistance had been doing some strangling of his own. And it's at this point I'd like to recognize my sources and tell you all that I fucked up. Oh no, what'd you do? For a while now, I've been wanting to read Kate Winkler Dawson's book, Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the great London smog, and the strangling of a city that the New York Times calls deeply researched and densely atmospheric. Uh-oh. I did read that book, and I do agree. Although a little tedious in its structure, I enjoyed it quite a bit. 
The author does a great job of painting a picture of London just on the heels of the Second World War. Uh-oh. What it was like to be a first responder during this killer fog, police desperately trying to keep up with transportation accidents and crime under the cover of poisonous clouds. There was doctors blindly shuffling door to door with sore feet, overwhelmed hospitals packing in patients, accounts of people stuck in their homes, family members struggling to breathe, doctors saying, this person needs to be hospitalized, but there are no beds left. And even so- Oh, weird. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Like, almost as though there was something like that going on right now. It is so bizarre. The parallels between this story and what's going on now. The effects the fog had on pre-existing conditions, how this uh, gave them bronchitis and and killed them. The masks that people wore then, although kind of cooler than now, they they were there. It was actually kind of strange how many parallels I found in my research. However, this book, Death in the Air, deeply researched uh, which is part of the problem. Yeah, why did you screw up? That doesn't sound like you screwed up. Uh, well, I didn't expect to learn so much about coal and parliament and regulation. All very interesting content, and I will share a little bit about what I learned. But this is supposed to be one part episode for Christmas. A Byron ruins a holiday event. Over the last two weeks, I could have booked this up for about a month. Oh, God. There was even a point where I was going to take a detour and talk about why frickin' Santa gives naughty folks coal, which led me to La Befana, an Italian witch. Befana? Yeah. Oh, oh, you know how I'm always talking about that Christmas play that I did with uh, what's-her-name McDowell's daughter? Yeah. The one that's all famous now? Mm-hmm. We talked about Bufana in that. Oh, wow. Uh, Literally. I mean, we'll have to save Bufana for another episode, but I also found Sinterklaas as assistant in uh, German and Dutch folklore, Zwarta Piet, or Black Piet, who's an extremely controversial bogeyman. I know all of these. Figure that in recent years has caused quite a stir after neo-Nazi groups had started violently defending their, quote, right to don the traditional costume of red lips, curly black wigs, blackened faces, and a minstrel-like costume. We'll have to do that another year. Oh, darn. Because, of course, this is Byron's serial corner. And although, yeah, that fog, it did kill thousands. If you think about it, it's really more of a spree killer. Hmm. Hmm. With all that said, the focus of my report tonight will be on the life and deaths attributed to a real pitiful piece of shit named John Reginald Holiday Christie. And Kelly, I hate to give you the collywobbles right before Christmas. Oh, God, collywobbles. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is not going in a good direction. No, it is. Because as an apology, I will remind you and allow you to use British phrases like bollocks, wanker, and even the, the Fright Day classic, Bob's Your Uncle. <laughs> Whenever you feel necessary. Oh, I do love Bob's your uncle. That's a Christmas present from me to you. Oh, thanks, buddy. John Reginald Christie, known to most as Reg. And that that is how I will refer to him throughout this story. It sounds like I'm, I'm calling him by his fun nickname, but I just found it easier to refer to him as Reg as opposed to John, which I feel like so many serial killers I've talked about are John. So he's Reg to me tonight, just like he was to most people. He came into this world as a reject on April 8th, 1899, near Halifax in Northern England to Mary Hannah and Ernest Christie. He was raised with five sisters and one brother in a working class household. His mother, Mary, she was a sweet woman. However, her husband was not. He was cold, strict, quiet. And although he didn't drink, he was prone to physical and verbal abuse. 
Every Sunday, he would march his family five miles to church. And I do mean march, like shoulders back, arms swinging. Yeah. Reg respected his father, but he also feared him. Uh, There's one story in Death in the Air that recalls an event, a happening. Uh Uh-oh. Reg shared an account of a beating that he received after being accused of stealing tomatoes, which apparently he didn't like at all. Once his mother convinced her husband otherwise, he was given a shilling for his trauma, which didn't quite make up for it. How much is a shilling equivalent to? I don't know. Go back to the early 1900s and tell me what a shilling's worth while I like continue. What? Give me a year. Give me an exact year because I'm doing Let's it. Let's do, uh, I don't know, how old would it be? Five, six, so 1905. I don't know. When Reg turned eight, his grandfather David Halliday passed away. And while seeing the body laid out in preparation for the funeral, he became captivated, transfixed on this whole event. A once powerful man had seemingly lost that appearance. Now he was nothing more than a body. God, now it's trying to tell me how much specific shilling coins from 1905 are worth. worth. huh? This no, experience changed Reg forever. He later recalled, quote, You would expect that for a little boy, this would be a terrible experience. For me, it was not. I was not frightened, worried, or perturbed in the slightest. I looked at the corpse with a strange, pleasant thrill. At age 11, he was granted a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School. He was a a bright kid that excelled in math. He was a very detailed student, the kind of person that tinkered with clocks for fun. It was later determined that he had an IQ of 128. Which, Kelly, led me down a road. Did you figure out the shilling stuff first? 5% of a pound. I don't know what that means. Tell me what a pound... Listen, listeners on the other side, excuse our ignorance. We don't understand your currency. IQ of 128. Uh, A pound is worth 20 shillings. Okay. Each shilling is worth a dozen pennies. Uh Uh-huh. It seems seems like something that would be uh, drawn out on a worksheet for a first grader. I do love math. Yeah. So much. I do apologize for this early tangent. The average IQ for a person is between 90 and 110. I had always assumed that the more prolific serial killers would have a high IQ, but in my digging, it's kind of all over the place. Um, On the high end, not a surprise, Ted Kaczynski, 167, Andrew Cunanan, 147, Ed Kemper, 145, Dahmer, matched him 145 i also read an account that Dahmer had a 76 so i don't know who to believe uh, maybe the conversion error i don't know B- yeah bundy had a 136 and on the highish range it was gacy at 118 kenneth bianchi at 116 berkowitz at 115 but i discovered that a majority of serial killers uh have an iq in the 90s or below you know, like Henry Lee Lucas, he was a dum-dum. Robert Picton, also a dum-dum. Both of them in the high 80s. Gary Ridgway, which kind of surprises me, not a smart man, 82. Really? So basically to be a serial killer, you have to either be incredibly brilliant or totally stupid. It lends itself to being really high or really low. But yeah, oddest tool, no surprise there. Double-dum with a 75. And the way killers kill actually says a lot about how smart they are as well. On average, and keep in mind there's not a lot of data here, so it feels a little skewed, bombers have the highest IQs, people like Ted Kaczynski, followed by stranglers assisted by guns or bludgeoning, then poisoners, lower than that, solo strangulation, stabbers, shooters, strangle assisted by stabbing, 
And at the bottom, with IQs in the 80s and 70s, all variations of bludgeoning, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, it being like a, a more primal uh, way of killing. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, this smart little boy proved himself a skilled athlete. He was a Boy Scout and even an assistant scout leader eventually, but he was nervous and awkward even from an early age. He was uh, scared of the dark. Even as an adult, he was easily spooked frequently from bad dreams, which uh, early on in this uh, uh, research gave me great joy. Y'all need to see a picture of this dork. It's in the show notes of this episode of FrightDay.com. After leaving school on April 22nd, 1913, he began a job as an assistant projectionist, a profession for artistic cool people or creeps. And I did forget to mention Reg loved photography. So it's kind of a weird Venn diagram I'm drawing. Um, Reg's coming of age didn't go great. His thoughts on sex and violence were already getting jumbled up. Being raised uh, in such a strict religious home with a majority of women around... That'll do it. Yeah. He uh, right there. denied himself ever engaging in, quote, the sins of self-pleasure. Oh, yeah, that's that's not good. Uh, okay. Later admitted that he caught a brief glimpse of his sister's stocking top. I think that's the... Uh, the portion between the skirt Sounds and the... Sounds healthy. Yeah. This thrill brought about strange feelings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Much like many serial killers, this crossing of wires caused issues with physical intimacy. One day, 16-year-old Reg and his two, uh, and, and two of his blokes... Kelly, you haven't said a single one yet. I can't... Oh, I haven't said blokes? Bob's your uncle. All right. Went to a place known as Monkey Run which is a lover's lane sort of uh, place in Seville Park. The boys paired up with some girls and went down the lane to love. Still a virgin, Reg was with someone he later described as a mill girl of loose morals. That sounds shaming. Mm -hmm. While his friends successfully scored, he struggled, trembling with his limp penis in his hand as the girl mocked him. Reg's account was a little different, maybe a, maybe a touch more gentle. I remember that we kissed and cuddled, but I heard later she told my friends I was slow. Uh, a week later, the same girl slept with one of his friends, and she very publicly compared the two. Yeah. Don't do that. At school, word spread, and they gave him the nickname Can't Do It Christy and Reggie Nocock. Which, uh, a later... Oh, boy. An autopsy would confirm that his dick was fine. It was normal size. Quote, All my life since, I have had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover. Let me do that one more time, because I'm, I'm trying to get a voice of, of him. All my life... <clears throat> all my life mm -hmm. since, I have had this fear of appearing... I was going to sing Casey and Jojo for you, because <laughs> you kept saying all my life. Oh, that's nice. But I won't. I appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate the Casey and JoJo, not the not doing oh, it. Oh, I thought you appreciated me not doing no. it. No. Love the JoJo. Oh, you want me to do it? Please don't. Do it. Okay. All my life since, I have had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover, he would later admit. This is where his need to be in complete control during sex started. It's also at this time that he became increasingly hypochondriatic, prone to hysteria, and we'll talk a lot more <laughs> about that soon. Still, he would spend his free time hanging out at pubs, even though, like his father, he never drank. He would only talk to women, even though he loved talking football. There was plenty of men around that he could do that with, but he didn't. 
he was playing the part of the good moral young man while secretly obsessing over sex and death. On September 19, 1916, two years into World War One, originally known as World War, did you know that? Reg enlisted in... <laughs> I guess that makes sense, yeah. The 52nd Nottingham and Derbyshire Signal Corp. He was a signal man, which I believe is... Uh, Kind of like in that movie 1917, that someone that delivers messages, but I believe he was more of a radio man than a runner, but I have no idea. I didn't see that movie. I just know that a man runs a lot in it. You see 1917? No. Uh, it, so war movies really, I struggle with quite a bit. Uh-huh. And so I kind of like save them up and then Knock out buck it. up and watch them all at once. Sure. During his 16 months of service, he was reprimanded twice for sneaking off base to find sex workers. And this would become a habit for Reg, as he could uh, usually pay them enough to do whatever he asked. But he saw more than just women. This was the time of trench warfare, and he was in the thick of it. Shells exploding all around him, bodies of his buddies rotting, and on uh, June 28th, 1918, a mustard gas shell exploded near him, knocking him unconscious as the gas crept around. Somehow he survived, but he was not all right, at least according to him. The gas left him blind for five months and unable to speak for over three years, leaving him with a permanent, soft, whiny voice. Or so he says. Military records state that he had no major symptoms of exposure, things like blisters on the skin, in the throat or the lungs, and had no injury to his eyes. He was diagnosed with functional aphonia, which is acute voice loss, but it wasn't from the gas. Apparently it was from fright. Really? Yeah. See, okay, I can say that, I mean, it feels like that's not actually a thing, though. Like, that doesn't go on a certain Remember, ticket. this is a man that in his adult years was spooked by scary dreams. Uh, I think you can lose your voice due to fright, but I, I did not look into that. I just looked into serial killer IQ. But you don't you lose it due to fright? You Well, whatever. Who knows? It could paralyze your vocal cords. I have no idea. He was hospital. Doesn't make any sense. 32 days he spent in the military hospital, treated for laryngitis, and then told to go home. And October 22nd of 1919, he did, where he quickly got a job in Sutcliffe's Woolen Mill so he could pay for more sex workers. Uh, however, hmm. he soon found real love, or something like that, in a woman named Ethel Simpson, the daughter of a rug designer, I believe. Because at this point in writing my script, it was 1 a.m. and I uh, couldn't find where I read, heard, or uh, maybe I just made up that detail. I do know, however, that <laughs> by all accounts, it only gets weirder from here. She seemed to be a good woman from a, a good family. The two married on May 10th of 1920, just months after meeting, but married life didn't come naturally to Reg. Not much did. Uh, his visits with sex workers continued and escalated. Uh, he was unable to get pregnant with Ethel. He was, he was unable to perform Disappointing his parents with his failings, he was disowned. Good lord. Yeah. Ethel and him separated after four years of marriage. Reg moved to London, and uh, Ethel, she went to live with her relatives. But uh, I'm going to yada yada the next 10-ish years of his okay. life. Not to min- Go ahead and yada. Not to minimize his crimes, but because I would rather focus on the lives of the people he eventually took. Thank you. In deep. Uh, as a quick summary... 
Over the next decade, Reg would be in and out of prison, three months for stealing packages while he was working as a mailman. Hmm. Those are all federal offenses, yeah? I don't know if they have the same laws oh. as us, because we're over That's a good on point. The, you know, the other side. Other side of the pond, yep. Nine months for theft, six months hard labor for assaulting a sex worker. Uh, he hit her over the head with a cricket bat in front of her child, blood <sighs> everywhere. Bad. And when she uh, came to and started to scream, he shoved his fingers down her throat, which is awful. Mm. And there were other assaults in the area that he was suspected of, but never charged for. Mm -hmm. And then he was given three months for stealing a lorry, Kelly. Hold on, what's a it's lorry? It's a car. It's a car, I believe. I don't know. It was. It was getting. I thought it was. I thought it was like the bat that a. I, it was like the police officer's baton or something. I was losing. Or was my it mind. a police officer's car? You know, I don't know. But while inside, why don't you look it up? Reg met a priest who convinced him to change his ways, which of course he didn't really. Uh, but when he got out, this is when he asked for Ethel back, and since she still very much loved him, she moved to London to be with him. They soon remarried. Oh, a lorry is a large, heavy motor vehicle for transporting goods or troops. All right. Also known as a truck. So I, I fucked up. It's probably just a normal car. I just, just trying. It's to, okay. You're trying. I'm, I know you're trying to use the words. I'm shoehorning in terms and I apologize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They remarried. And in December of 1938, the couple moved into a small ground floor flat and an address soon to be infamous. 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbroke Grove neighborhood of Notting Hill. Notting Hill? That's a great one. I had a feeling you were going to bring up Notting Hill. Is that a is that a Hugh Grant film? It is a Hugh Grant film. I'm not even particularly like a giant Hugh Grant yeah. fan. It's just, it's just you a know. popular name of a place. Yeah. But I think people have a distorted view of Notting Hill because now I believe it's very nice. But back then, not great. Uh... We'll, ta we'll get into it. This uh, Interesting because I would not have like pushed one direction or the other with it. Really? I, I would have reserved judgment because I don't have a strong thought about whether it's one or the other. So, Well, at the time, 10 Rillington Place was a cheaply constructed three-story brick building in a low-income area. The train was apparently so close to the building that it was deafening. Ooh. So obviously not cut out for war when uh, World War II did happen. Reg did a good job of playing the part of a good citizen joining the police force as a volunteer war reserve officer. The power and control over people was exhilarating. He would uh, follow women around, take notes, spy on his neighbors. Uh, he became almost fanatical about upholding the law and eventually got the nickname the Himmler of Rillington Place. Even then they were, they were Himmlering, I guess. Ugh. Reg was there for a while, but he resigned in 1943 after... The affair that he was having with a co-worker was interrupted by her real soldier husband, who beat the shit out of him. Fun. You see, his bad behavior never stopped. Right as soon as he got out of prison the last time, he went back to visiting sex workers. And of course, sex work is real work, but when you're working with awful men like this... Well, one of the dangers of being a sex worker is that you come into contact with people like this, yeah. right? Because it's, it's like anything else that is done underground so to speak it lends carries itself the risk to. of yeah and with these visits his uh, fantasies were escalating and becoming more and more violent and disgusting his hypochondria 
progressed as well. Sometime in 1938, he was hit by a car while riding his bike. Okay, that doesn't sound like hypochondria. Like, if you're hit by a car, you're probably actually well, injured. We'll get into it. Yeah, he, he was injured. He uh, he hit his head among injuring other things. And of course, head injuries, bam, bam. another uh, serial killer dead giveaway there. Uh-oh. This impacted his life significantly. He uh, became more and more concerned about his health and would leave the house less often. His ailments would become more clear in subsequent years. Fibromyalgia, horrible headaches, hemorrhoids, and uh, nervous diarrhea. As things progressed, he would claim to be unable to lay down for extended periods of time. A combination of enteritis, which is the swelling of the small intestine, and extreme back pain would leave him unable to bend at the waist. If he needed to pick anything off the floor, he would have to get on his hands and knees to do this. Or so he claimed. Uh, okay. This is where I want to say, I, I know many folks out there are struggling with invisible illnesses. Me, me, I'm I, one. Yeah, me. you are me, one. Me, 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 me. I, I don't even want to speculate further on what Reg Christie did have, but I do want to make fun of his diarrhea. And uh, Oh yeah, no, let's make fun of him. He sounds bad. That's cool. We should make fun of him. Yeah, I mean, whether or not he was sick, I'm glad he was in pain or thought he was uh, because yeah. of the awful things he did later. He was a bad person. Between 1937 and 1952, Reg made 174 visits to a man named Dr. Matthew Odess. One of my favorite stories of his ailments was when he approached Odess with a particularly bad case of enteritis. The doctor recommended a starvation diet of only, oh, yeah, of only milk, toast, and barley water. So lactose, gluten, and... Uh, okay, so hold on. So does this yep. mean you actually haven't been drinking barley water? You were just talking about it because of your research? Yeah, what would make you think... I mean, I did mention it. I asked you if, if it was something yeah, you were familiar with. Yeah, I you've been drinking it because I didn't realize it had any connection to your story. So when you just randomly <laughs> mentioned some liquid that you could possibly yeah. be consuming... I'm unsure of the health benefits of barley water, but I've heard it's something... Like I said, it does sound like non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, so back home... After this doctor's appointment, his sweet wife had prepared him a big glass of barley water. He was in bed. Uh, as, nom, as she nom, was nom, carrying nom, it nom. to him, she uh, slipped and spilt it all over him. So he laid in bed that night, wet, in pain, and starving. That night, however, while laying in bed, the couple heard a loud thud from the flat above them. Something like a flower sack hitting the floor. Okay. They got out of bed, went to the window. Silence. Then more moving. It sounded like uh, someone pushing around heavy furniture. At least that's what they would soon tell the police. Uh-oh. In April of 1948. <gasps> Excuse me? Oh, yeah. Just, you're always doing this to me. I know. Mm. Listen, it's fun. Oh, yeah, it's super fun. It's fun. In April of 19... 19- Is it fun? No, it's not. I don't it's know not. why I said You're right. that. In April of 1948, Timothy Evans and his then-pregnant wife, Beryl, which is spelled B-E-R-Y-L. <laughs> I was really hoping it was I know. A-double-R. I just want to get that out of the way really quick. They moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place. Six months later, they gave birth to a daughter. They did or she did? She did. Okay, just clarifying. Beryl gave birth to a daughter, Geraldine. Tim was a working-class guy. He was a van driver for a food company. He was not terribly smart. Due to health problems as a child, he had some sort of weird uh, 
reoccurring blisters and open sores. I can't remember what it was called on his feet. So he missed a lot of school. And he uh, would go on to say that he couldn't write or read beyond comics. He was known to embellish and boast to boost his self-esteem. The marriage wasn't a good one. Neighbors noted hearing heated arguments. Uh, Beryl kept a messy house full of dirty diapers and spoiled food. And she, uh, she wasn't great with money either. But Tim, he was an abusive drunk who was having an affair hmm. with a uh, 15 or 16-year-old girl. So... Is that an affair or is that just rape? I, I like don't rape. know the law of the time, but don't like it okay. either way. Things got even worse for the Evans family when Beryl found out she again was pregnant. She immediately said she didn't want to have the baby, that they couldn't afford the cost and uh, she couldn't handle the stress. Also, their relationship was awful. They weren't getting along. But of course, yeah, there's nothing, you know, literally no, no reason, reason to stay. None. Unfortunately, abortion wasn't legal in London at the time. And uh, anyway, Tim, coming from a very religious home, was staunchly against the idea. However, this didn't stop Beryl from trying. She was popping mystery tablets and uh, attempted to douche the pregnancy away, saying that she would rather die than have another baby. Okay, that's that's really grim. Yeah. On November 30th, 1949, Reg opened his front door, seeing three police officers struggling to pry up the drain cover underneath his front bay window. Uh, okay. They asked him when the last time he saw Beryl Evans and her child was. 150 miles away, Tim was in a jail cell in South Wales. The day before, he had turned himself in, confessing to the murder of both his wife and young daughter. And what he admitted during interrogation does change a couple times. The first time detectives walked through his account, which they had to write down word for word due to his inability to to write, uh, it took almost two hours to tell. It was extremely detailed too detailed Oh, that his three-month pregnant wife had been injecting herself in the vagina with a strange mixture. When that didn't work, she was popping tablets that she started looking ill. This is when Beryl threatened to kill herself and their child. He didn't believe that she would follow through, so he went to work that day. During his deliveries, he claimed to have met a man at a diner who gave him an abortion pill. When he came home, he told Beryl the story she found the pill in his coat while she was looking for a cigarette the next day after work tim came home to find her dead on the bed he fed the baby waited up till 2 a.m then slipped her body down the stairs and into the drain he uh, went back upstairs and smoked a cigarette okay over the next few days he quote got the baby looked after quit his job, sold his furniture, returned home to his parents' house, claiming that his wife and daughter were on holiday. Confession one. Wow. But it didn't seem right. Yeah, he seemed detached. He was too specific, and he couldn't follow up on the details that were questioned. And uh, back at 10 Rillington Place, it took three men to finally pry open the grate in front of Reg's house. It smelled wet and rotten. Oh God! But there were no bodies. Barely. No bodies. It's Christmas. There was no. Really? There was no bodies in there. There was no bodies. It just 
just smells like there are. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Upon hearing that the was. news of no bodies and how difficult it was for them to get the grate up, detectives pressed Tim again, and his story quickly changed. I said that to protect a man named Christy. It's not true about the man at the diner either. I'll tell you the truth now. The second statement begins, and oh boy, not good for Reg. Should I plug my ears? Not yet. A week before Beryl... Not yet? It's actually... Oh boy, okay. I mean, you know... Listen, a week before Beryl died, uh, Reg had Tim over for a chat. The pregnancy and the pills came up, and uh, Reg responded... If you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done it for you without any risk. Red shared that he had learned a thing or two about practicing medicine in the war, that he had helped other women with unwanted pregnancies before, but that one in ten women wouldn't survive. After much discussion, the Evans decided to take Reg up on his offer. The day of the procedure, Tim went to work. When he came home, he was met by Reg at the base of the stairs. Go upstairs and I'll follow behind. On the bed, Beryl was wrapped in blankets, dead. Upon closer look, Tim noted, quote, I could see that she was dead and that she had been bleeding from the mouth and nose and that she had been bleeding from the bottom part. Great. Oh, from the bottom part. Bottom part. Okay. Great. Reg said mm. that he would dispose of the body and would make arrangements for a couple from East Acton to look after Geraldine. The last time Tim saw Beryl was when Reg was carrying her body down the stairs. Okay. And it was these conflicting statements that, yeah, would eventually come to haunt Tim Evans, as well as Reg. Uh, during the investigation, the Christies were extremely helpful, recalling the bickering and even a time that Beryl said Tim tried to strangle her. Huh, not relevant. That she wanted to leave, but was scared. On December 2nd, 1949, three days after Tim confessed, another search was conducted. The focus was on the wash house with a stuck lock, which Ethel helped open inside a woodpile walled in the corner of a sink. Behind it was something wrapped up almost like a package, a green tablecloth wrapped around a blanket tied tightly with a thick cord. And behind the door was a much smaller package. Oh, Jesus Christ. Can we go back and just finish the story of Christmas Story? I like that better. <laughs> I, I felt much more comfortable totally in that story. I totally understand that. Beryl and Geraldine were found. The cause of death for both was strangulation. Beryl with an undetermined cord from behind, and Geraldine still had a striped tie around her neck. Presented with this evidence, Tim's statement changed again. He had strangled his wife because she was causing him to go into debt. In a fit of temper, oh, that's a I, great reason. Yeah, I grabbed a piece of rope from a chair, which I had brought home off my van, and strangled her with it. The baby was strangled because it wouldn't stop crying, he said. The details of his confession seemed to match the evidence, so uh, when taken to trial, that's what the prosecution focused on. But remember, this confession was always dictated by someone other than himself, and he uh, signed it without reading it because he couldn't read. So there's uh, always the possibility of coercion. He one time mentioned that he was afraid the cops would rough him up if he didn't say the right thing. And when you go back and read the sentence, like, in a fit of temper, I grabbed a piece of rope from a chair which I had brought home off my van and strangled her with it. 
that seems like a collection of details that the police may be uh, presenting in a way that would uh, make it a foolproof, I guess. I don't know. God. But Tim, yeah, he did He did have a history of violence. Uh, there was the stress of the pregnancy. The neighbors had always heard them fighting, and Beryl had told Ethel Christie about that prior strangulation. Ten days after the murder, Reg visited his doctor, Dr. Odess, complaining of pain in the left lumbar muscles of his back, saying it was caused not by stress, but by physical strain, having lifted something heavy. Maybe, maybe down, maybe downstairs. The trial was set for January 11th, 1950. Under British law, this is weird, I did not know this, a, a suspect can only be tried for one murder at a time. Okay, I want somebody to explain the logic of that. Unsure if that's still how they do things, but back then that's certainly it. So, uh, <laughs> senior counsel Christmas Humphreys figured that the strangulation, really? yep, that's his name, uh, of his daughter would be a more likely conviction due to, I guess, the... The fact that it's even worse than killing your wife? Yeah, Is that it, why and they were worried that, that okay. people would be judgmental of the kind of wife that Beryl was. Well, the, and the fact that she had wanted an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that kind that's of came out. That's a good point. Okay, that, I, that's, I mean, it's not good in terms of society, but it's good in terms of logic to try and get this guy locked up. Okay. The trial wasn't covered much by the press, and they dubbed it, quote, fish and chippy. A dull double murder. <laughs> the the uh, Wait, a dull murder? A, like a boring? A dull double murder. Yeah, not very exciting. So much so that the uh, the press box, it was empty for most of okay, the time. Okay, they, they knew that he had killed like an infant child. Didn't matter. Just a couple of fish and chippy Doesn't matter who. folk. During the trial, it was revealed that Beryl was indeed pregnant, oh. 16 weeks with a boy. Also, more details of the condition of her body. There was swelling of her right eye and mouth, and her lip was actually so swollen that it was touching her nose. Okay, that's Awful, gross. yeah. She had bruising and scarring on the walls of her vagina, which they determined was most likely due to self-inflicted abortion attempts. Sweet. But yeah, it, it was- Let's tighten those abortion laws, folks. Let's uh, it, it was, lead it was to very, great things. It was very likely that she was raped and that this was overlooked by the medical examiner. And it was further disappointing to hear that they neglected to take a vaginal swab after they discovered her body because of they, didn't. they knew it was the husband. Yeah. Case closed. Totes, great, okay. So it came out in trial that Tim had an IQ of less than an Otis Tool, uh, 65, with a mental age of an 11-year-old. God, like how? Mm. Yeah, Tim withdrew his confession, saying that the second was indeed the truth, that Reg Christie had killed his wife. But uh, most everyone considered the story too wild to be true. The Christies were actually key witnesses for the prosecution at the trial, they denied everything and kept pointing to the dysfunctional relationship of their neighbors. I mean, how could a feeble man like Reg carry a body downstairs? Well... The defense tried to uh, bring up Reg's criminal past, but his redemption story was convincing. It had been 15 years since he had been in jail. And uh, although there was a handful of evidence that... Which means that the authorities are real stupid yeah. because... This man. Well, there was yeah. there was evidence okay. that could have cleared Tim. There was a time card saying that he was at work. There was other witnesses. It was all omitted and never shown to the jury. The trial only lasted three days, and the jury took 40 minutes to convict him. 
And when the uh, verdict was read, Reg wept into his hand. <sighs> Tim's mother yelled, you're a murderer to him. And uh, interesting. his wife defended him, <laughs> said that he's a good man. Really? I thought- On March 9th, 1950, Timothy Evans was hanged by the neck until dead. Wait, how, hold on. How, how long was that after the trial? Sorry, at the end of the trial uh, to that think. was... How many of the days? Trial was in January, February, March. Two months. And the interesting thing, okay. uh, it was December 2nd that he confessed to the murder, and his trial was January 11th of the next year. So, like, things moved very fast back then. Yeah, yeah. Just a okay. couple months. Huh. Uh, if only police would have looked harder during their second search, maybe they would have found the two bodies buried in the small shared garden at 10 Rillington Place, possibly even the human femur that was being used to prop up a portion of the fence. Oh my God, are yeah. you kidding me? At this me? point in uh, preparing my report, it is 4 a.m. in the morning, and I've realized that... E oh, a.m. in the morning as opposed to a.m. in the afternoon. I'm gonna smash my face into a keyboard. <laughs> I realized that even though I prefaced all this with a warning that I had maybe taken on too much for one episode, I continue to fuck myself by digging deeper into details. Fun. Okay. The opposite of what Reg did when disposing of two corpses that we'll talk about in a minute. I might need to cut the fog talk even further, which makes that extended A Christmas Story Cole segue at the top even less significant. So I apologize once again. It's the only thing that's gotten me through this far, Byron. So Merry Christmas. Thank you. Ruth first. A slender, short, dark-haired, olive-skinned woman with deep brown eyes shaped like almonds. She was Austrian, and in 1939, at 17, she was separated from her parents. Mm, schnitzel. Yeah, she was a half-Jewish woman, and she fled while she still could. A year later, she was forced into an internment camp on the Isle of Man. Ooh. She was hmm. troubled over what happened to her parents, fearing that they had been uh, killed in the concentration camps. It was later discovered that they had safely immigrated to New York City. Wow. I, that's such such a terrible thing. Like a separated child believing their parents were dead when they actually got the better end yeah. of the stick. Yeah. She had a baby girl with a Greek waiter that was immediately given up for adoption. Ruth eventually found herself barely making ends meet in London. She was bright but shy, bordered on depressed. Yeah. Keeping jobs was a struggle. She had a poor work ethic and was frequently absent and would quit with short notice. She could never seem to develop strong friendships, but she did appreciate male attention. She would frequent a place called David Griffin's Refreshment Room, and I would like more refreshment rooms when all this pandemic stuff is done. Such a better name than a bar. Yeah, this place, uh, she met a distinguished war veteran and uh, reserve police officer in August of 1943. Okay. He became a frequent client of hers and the two would have sex while he was taking a break from patrol. Awesome. Sometimes Seems even good. at his home. Yeah. In uh, late August, after expressing that she may want something more than just a sexual relationship with this man, Reg, he welcomed her into his bed, later recalling... The poor girl did not dream she was walking into the room of her death. Oh, God. While they were having sex, things escalated. He reached over and grabbed a piece of rope from the side of the bed, wrapping it around her neck, pulling tight, and killing Ruth. Suddenly, uh. though, 
there was a knock at the door. A boy passed Reg a note informing him that his wife, who had been out of town visiting her brother, would be home soon. Who's this boy? I th- I it's think like it's a just, payroll? You know, it's, it's like a Newsies thing, but his job is to deliver messages, I guess. I don't know how that works. He's a bit of a, hmm. a messenger pigeon, uh, but a boy. I need one of those for Christmas. Yeah. Maybe Re- two. Reg pulled up the floorboards in his front room, hid the corpse underneath, nailing them back into place. Later that night, his wife returned with her brother, and he stayed in the room directly above this body. The next day, while his wife and her brother were out, he moved Ruth to the washroom. And that night around 10 p.m. Hold on, he left her in the house. He put... He put Ruth's body under the floorboards. Right, and but then when he had a chance to move her, he goes, you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna move her to this other room. Let's keep mo- her in the house. Well, so the, the washroom. This in this three-story building, there was only one. I don't know if a washroom is considered a bathroom. I believe it was just where they dumped quote-unquote slop. They had these shared buildings. God, what a life! Terrible place. In the slop room, he put Ruth's body, and around 10 p.m. that night, he excused himself from dinner, telling his wife that he had to use the bathroom. Realize you just did 10 p.m. that night, and you also did 4 a.m. in the morning. I can't. That's okay. I can't. It's okay. I'm just just calling you out on redundancy is all. It's important to do that and hold me accountable. Uh, This bathroom, (laughs) again, shared by the entire building, uh, and I mean, how... I don't know. He he suffered from a lot of stuff. So uh, hemorrhoids, the diarrhea, I guess, when he ex- excuses himself to use the bathroom. And maybe it takes as much time as he needs. Instead of using the bathroom, he may have used it. It may have been quicker. But he uh, used the, all of this time or some of this time to dig a shallow grave in their shared garden. Later commenting, I don't know why I focused so much on him taking a shit a second ago. I don't know either. He later commented that the neighbors were watching him dig and they, they gave him nods and cheerios, which is a, a, the greeting, not the cereal. But Ruth wouldn't be alone in that garden for long. While working at Ultra Electric Limited, a factory in northwest London, Reg noticed her right away. Muriel Amelia Eady, an assembly line worker who made plane parts during the war, uh, he began working his second victim almost immediately asking her to have tea with him. When she responded with reluctance, he changed his invitation to tea at his home and with his wife. This reminds me of how when Marilyn wanted to do, finally gave in to doing the naked photo shoot, the photo she wanted shoot. life there. Yeah, very similar. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The group would become fast friends and they would frequent movies, but Reg never stopped looking for a time to strike. In October of 1944, as the smoky fog started sticking that year, he noticed Muriel's persistent cough. I have something that can cure that, he said, elaborating that he had medical training from the war. So she agreed to visit his home for a treatment. Uh... Reg would consider this his, quote, clever murder, much cleverer than the first. Using a mask, tubing, and a jar, he built a a breathing treatment apparatus. He he punched two holes in the lid of the jar, one for each tube. The first led from the mask to the jar, which the jar contained steaming water infused with friar's balsam, which I don't know anything about that. Apparently it smells something like alcohol, so vaguely medical. 
The second tube was much longer and connected to the gas pipe behind his stove. On October 7th, Muriel arrived for her appointments. Ethel was out of the house. She sat in the kitchen and slipped the mask on, seemingly unaware of that second tube. Uh, a scarf was placed over her head to keep the steam around longer, and the gas was turned on. She went unconscious. Reg laid her body out on a bed. He strangled her with her stockings and then oh my God. raped her body. Great. Awesome. Okay. After a brief period in the wash house, uh, she soon joined Ruth in the garden. Over the years, Reg lost track of where exactly the bodies were. Oh, shame. Once he drove a shovel uh, into the neck of a skeleton, separating a skull from the rest of the body. This was Muriel's skull. He threw it into a bombed out house nearby where it was soon discovered by some kids which is awful, uh, stand-by-me kind of stuff. His illness intensified mm -hmm. and subsided, usually getting worse around his acts of violence, but in the winter of 1952, as one of the worst pea supers in London history <laughs> rolled in. It's such, it's such a jolly term, though. It's, it's terrible. a pea super. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Reg Christie was planning on killing again. London has long suffered air quality issues. Dating back to the 13th century, in 1257, in Nottingham, the burning of sea coal inside the castle filled it with smoke so thick that it actually forced Queen Eleanor to leave. Fifteen years later, Edward I banned its use, threatening to torture and kill anyone who used it. But uh, citizens kept burning this coal even after someone was executed. They uh, couldn't afford other sources of fuel. They couldn't afford wood, which is what they wanted them to burn. The burning of this sea coal emits higher concentrations of sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, and nitric oxide. And uh, in the 1600s, it was attributed to rickets that affected half of the population. I knew Can you were going to talk gonna, about rickety crickets. You were going to talk about that. a lot happier. Of course it does. That's why I didn't take it out, even though I knew that would be a trigger for you. You knew that I would say rickety crickets. Half of the children's population got rickets due to this coal burning. Awful. During World War II, however, Lond London used their pollution problem to their advantage, creating a smoke screen to make targets harder to hit. They would also do these, uh, these blackouts where they would make everyone turn off their power and lights so that the, uh, during the uh, blitzes, they would be less spot spotable. Not a word. Don't care. It's okay. After the war, though, the production of coal was one of the only profitable industries that England had to offer, but they didn't keep the high-quality coal for themselves. Instead, they sold their citizens a mixture of powdered coal peppered with nuggets called nutty slack. So nutty slack, it, it created less heat and more smoke. It was very inefficient, but this is what Londoners burnt. During the colder months, they became accustomed to frequent, dense, stinking fogs, yellow-green clouds that became known as, again, pea supers. All the pictures are in black and white, though. Jolly you don't, good pea super. You don't get to see the, the exquisite, disgusting, uh, vomit-colored clouds that uh, stalked the citizens of London. December 4th, 1952, a huge anticyclone 
came over London. It was so big that it stretched from Spain to Germany. Hold on, can you, I'm sorry, but can you tell us what an anti-cyclone is real quick? I knew you were going to ask me this. It's well, a, then why, you should have planned on it then. So what it is, is it's a, uh, it's a weather system with high atmospheric pressure at its center around which the air slowly circulates. So is this like a government-controlled weather system? Of course not. This is not harp-controlled. That was years uh, later. But, okay. So well, what happened, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. more, more simply, um, something that happens often in the valley where we live, it causes a, a temperature inversion with the, the mm-hmm. difference in pressure. What it does is uh, cold air is trapped below a lid of warm air mm-hmm. and it causes the air to become, I guess, colder than normal and stagnant. Temperatures, they drop. And in London, factories continued pumping exhaust into the air. And more and more coal was fed into furnaces across the city. They needed to stay warm. What this did is it filled the city with this dense, poisonous fog full of soot, sulfur, carbon dioxide, and nitric oxide. Uh, This event would uh, last for five days. And again, it would take the lives of over 10,000 people and make over 100,000 people sick. 10,000. It's a lot of bodies. It like it really is. In in the book, which I will recommend one more time, Death in the Air. Grab it if you want to know what this experience is like. It 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 does a great job. The bodies weren't just like in the streets or filling the Thames River. They were in the houses, you know, the, and 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 they stayed there. Ugh. The the morgues were full of bodies, so full that it was. Some of the victims that died had to stay in their house for like three or four weeks children lost their parents it, it was it was just a disaster it's it's uh something that you need to know more about so again death in the air i think Everybody it's go learn yeah. some nonetheless while this was happening reg had an epiphany he didn't very much like his job his home or his wife on December, okay. <laughs> on December 6th, he quit his decent job at the British Road Service, saying that he had lined up a better job in Sheffield and that his wife didn't feel safe in their neighborhood anymore. At the time, there was an influx of immigrants from the West Indies, uh, and much like the U.S. at the time, everyone were disgusting racists. Landlords would hang signs on their buildings declaring no coloreds. Oh, God, here we go. But the building they lived in was recently purchased uh, by a man named Charles Brown. Not that one, but an immigrant from Jamaica. And he started allowing renters of all kinds, which was fantastic. Okay. Reg didn't like this cultural shift very much. Of course not. He claimed that this is the. very anti Reg. He claimed the new tenants would laugh loudly and cook food that smelled disgusting. Of course they did. That women would spit in the halls. It brought in an increase of uh, sex workers to the neighborhood as well, something that he found just awful, even though, of course. Disgusting. So Charlie accused the Christies of causing most of the conflicts that they complained about. Even more concerning to Reg, he was planning on excavating the garden to flatten it out. A lawyer was hired, and this paused Charles' plans. But yet, there was no new job in Shipfield, no plan of moving even. And a few days after the great smog of London lifted, Ethel Christie was strangled with a stocking while she lay yeah. in her bed. Yeah. Yeah. She remained there for three days, the stocking still around her neck, Gross. a makeshift diaper beneath her, 
until Reg could no longer bear sleeping next to her. With the garden near capacity, he again pulled up the floorboards, making this a more permanent hiding place this time, hammering down the boards after he took her ring and snipped off uh, some of her pubic hairs as a memento. Oh, God. Over the next several days, Reg wrote letters to relatives saying that she was too sick to write them for the holidays, but not to worry. She was seeing a doctor. He even sent several gifts labeled from Ethel and Reg. Neighbors were told that Ethel had gone to Sheffield and that he would follow shortly. Uh, A smell was noticed, though, and Reg was seen sprinkling his house and garden with disinfectants. In January, a still jobless Reg sold all of his furniture. Along with a watch and his wife's ring, he uh, forged her signature and emptied their bank account. He was sleeping on a a flea-covered mattress on the floor. Of the furniture that he sold, he kept three chairs, and he was using one of them as a table, which is pretty cool. It reminds me of a 17-year-old... I use chairs as tables sometimes. All right. Come on. You've got plenty of tables. Well, yes, but still, sometimes a chair is just handy. He was experiencing a serious post-holiday seasonal blues at this point. While out one day, he bumped into a woman looking for a place to rent. He invited her to look at his place, but was uh, seriously bummed out when she showed up with her husband. Oh, hate <laughs> they, when that happens. They agreed to take his place and paid him upfront three months rent. He quickly packed up what he had into a suitcase of theirs that he was borrowing euthanized his cat and dog oh my god uh, why are you doing this to me moved seriously it was march 20th not even one day after moving in charlie brown the landlord informed this couple that they had no right to be there and he uh, kicked them out which money aside they were actually pretty excited to go because the place stunk to high heavens is that the is that the right term? High heavens? I don't think I've ever yeah, said that. High heaven? Yeah. High heavens? I, I, can't, I don't know if it's plural or singular. Hmm. With the flat empty, the landlord allowed the upstairs tenant, Bresford Brown, to use their kitchen. Bresford quickly noticed the smell and attempted to locate the source while scrubbing the filth off the walls. While investigating, though, uh, he, 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 he wanted to hang his radio on the wall. He wanted to do a couple changes to the kitchen. Tapping the wall, though, he discovered that part of it was hollow, and uh, there was a door next to that portion that was nailed shut. So he thought it was just an old coal cellar, like a four by six place where coal coal was stored. Uh, He peeled back the wallpaper and shined a flashlight inside. Shocked by what he saw, the police were called. Between January 19th and March 6th, 1953, Reg had killed three women. They had all been tied up, strangled, and raped repeatedly before and after death. The gas tube technique had been used on all of them. Investigators also discovered the body of his wife when they noticed the loosened floorboards. It was later determined that the unidentified victims were Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectoria McLennan. Okay. Kathleen was a sex worker, experiencing homelessness. She looked older than she was, and she had troubles with alcohol. Several bars had banned her for obnoxious singing. (laughs) I've gotten banned. No, just kidding. Too much red wine. She called it a, quote, jolly jump up. 
but uh, she had Wait, had, wine was a jolly jump up? I don't know if it was the singing or the wine or the combination of the two, but either way, it's a jolly jump up. Okay. She didn't have a great start to her life, though. She was orphaned at three and raised by nuns. Seemingly, no one wanted anything to do with her. Kathleen was lured in by Reg when they met at a fish and chips place. He wanted her for a photo shoot, which is something that he did often with sex workers. The morning after the murder, Reg stepped around her dead body and made tea. Oh my god. He really, you know the thing that's, like, I mean, I guess this just goes with being a sociopath, but, like, the complete lack of urgency to get rid of bodies continues to make me, like, weirded out. Well, and this is pretty typical serial killer escalation. He's nearing berserker mode at this point. Okay. Where you start being more careless, stop worrying so much. Rita, she was uh, six months pregnant. She stumbled into Reg's trap while at a cafe. She asked him for a cigarette, and he admitted to eavesdropping on a conversation that she was having with a friend. She was looking for a new flat, and Reg had one that she might be interested in. She unfortunately arrived alone to check it out, and uh, Reg claims to have filled the room with gas, but that doesn't really make much sense because he would have also been gassed unless he came out wearing a scary gas mask, which would... I mean, that's a horror film right there, but I don't know. Either way, she did black out and uh, shortly later was strangled so hard that it broke her neck. She was only 25. Oh, my God. Uh, Hectorina, a name I've never heard before that I like quite a bit. I feel like that's they thought it was a boy and then they realized real late that it was actually a girl. Yeah. She was 27 at the time of her death. She bounced between two relationships at the time, one with a married man and the other with a, a man who was in prison. She was a very vulnerable woman who was struggling to survive in London. She met Reg outside of a movie theater. He was offering to sublet his flat to her and her boyfriend, who I believe was the married man. Uh, Hours after her murder, her boyfriend showed up wondering where she was. She was three hours late to meet him, and he was concerned. Reg walked him through the flats, room to room, and uh, he left, having found nothing. Mm. Due to the size okay. of, the, of, the, of the small flat and it being empty, police found very little else inside. But on the second search two days later, they made their way to the garden. There they discovered burnt bone fragments in a bucket that led them to excavate. Ruth and Muriel were finally found. In a pile of garbage near the garden, they found a uh, tin that once held cough drops. There was no cough drops inside, but there were four clumps of matted pubic hair oh my god inside so now considered the main suspect reg was on the run kind of he'd gotten a bed at a hostel in central london paying for several days up front using his real name (sighs) even though his name and face were on the front of all newspapers things like the house of murder yields up more grisly secrets he went to movies he relaxed at cafes And uh, 11 days after he left, on Tuesday, March 31st, 1953, at 9.30 a.m. in the morning, when the sun was out. (laughs) There we go. Third time's a charm. A police officer approached a disheveled Reg, watching a river barge being unloaded. When asked for ID, he said he didn't have any. The officer requested him remove his hat. His bald head and glasses gave him away. And in the pockets of his wrinkled raincoat was his ID, 
some coins, and an old newspaper clipping about the trial of Timothy Evans with details of the murder. During interrogation, he did mention the four bodies, but referenced, quote, something he couldn't quite remember, trying to gauge if they had discovered the bodies in the garden. Uh, at 10.45 a.m., Reg was charged with murder. The trial of John Reginald Halliday Christie began on Monday, June 22, 1953, in Court 1 of the Old Bailey. This is the same courtroom that Tim Evans was tried in just three years before. And again, that weird British rule where you can only be charged for uh, one murder at a time seems extreme in this case. They selected the victim, his wife, Ethel, to be the, the one that they went with. Reg tried to plead insanity, but although it was determined he had a hysterical personality, he was not insane. And honestly, I gotta tell you, Kelly, I haven't heard him say one funny thing yet. I don't know where they got that. I don't know that. Right? <laughs> oh my god. When insanity fell away, he settled into having a spotty memory of the events. Uh... After four days of proceedings, it took the jury only an hour and 20 minutes of deliberation and on uh, Thursday, June 25th, 1953, Reg was found guilty of murder. Well, once in a while. He did not appeal the conviction. While awaiting execution, Reg spent his time playing dominoes and clipping out articles about himself, which there were plenty. Uh, he willingly spoke about his crimes, revealing details of the murders to guards. A stark difference to how he spoke before the conviction, where he said he, he did kill the women, but it wasn't his fault. <laughs> Okay, great, great so excuse. Whose fault? I mean, like, did oh, he... it was it was theirs or a, a, a comedy of errors, I suppose. On the morning of July, 15th, well, then tell me he didn't actually use the phrase comedy. Of oh, errors. of course he didn't. Okay, the the abortion was a mercy killing, and sex workers that were killed had attacked him, and it was self defense. Those kinds of things. Okay. Uh, on the morning of July fifteenth, nineteen fifty three, in the same execution chamber, and with the same executioner who had hung Tim Evans. A man who was eventually given a posthumous pardon for the murder of his wife and daughter, Reg stood, hands tied behind his back, a noose around his neck. He refused last words and whiskey, but did mention to the hangman that the rope made his neck itch. The hangman replied, it won't bother you for long. The, Ooh, snap, literally. The trap doors opened. Reg fell seven and a half feet before the rope caught him, dislocating his third and fourth vertebrae. You can say snap now. Snap! He was dead. His body was buried within the walls of the prison. And back to that tin of pubes real quick. Mm, fun, yeah, let's do that. So he claimed that they belonged to the four victims found in the house on 10 Rillington Place, which, of course, was eventually flattened in 1978. However, they only matched one of the victims. So it's very likely that Reg killed more people than we know, but no further attempts to identify victims have been made. Because they were sex workers and yeah. society sucks. Sure does. And similar to the visual of the old man disappearing into the black coal smoke of a basement, if there is a hell, I hope Reg was forced to descend into its pits. May his back and belly ache forever at the same time. I mean, I like the last sentiments, except for the fact that you were comparing him to the old man in a Christmas story, and the old man in a Christmas story was really kind of a, a hero. So. Let's be real. He's in hell. 
No, he's not. He's great. He kicked dogs. No, just the bumpuses. Okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Kelly. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks, B. Wow. Don't sound too excited because we're not done yet. It's time to review anything for Jackson. Hope you're enjoying your visit here this evening. Now, on with the show. You and me in paradise. It's a banger. Turn it off. Turn it off. It's a, I, turn it off now. Anything for Jackson. 2020 supernatural horror film directed by Justin G. Dick, written by Keith Cooper, starring Sheila McCarthy, Julian Richings, and Constantina Mantelos. A bereaved Satanist couple kidnap a pregnant woman so they can use an ancient spellbook to put their dead grandson's spirit into her unborn child, but end up summoning more than they bargained for? Justin G. Dick. <laughs> He, he's got an interesting story, it seems. I couldn't find too terribly much about him, but I did find a really great article by The Hollywood Reporter. Okay. I mean, that seems like an odd source. So he worked in the industry for a long time. Uh, he was a cinematographer and editor. He did music videos, many short films. He, he pretty much did anything that he could get his hands on. When it was time to uh, do his first feature, he had this indie horror film idea in his head. He approached a producer for financing, and uh, she said something completely different. She offered him a family movie about a kid who plays soccer with a monkey. And this film... Really? Yeah. A kid? Plays soccer with, with a, monkey. a monkey. Yep. And the movie was called Monkey in the Middle from 2014, which did well. Oh, is that where Malcolm in the Middle came from? I think Malcolm in the Middle came prior. This would be a post-Malcolm film. He, he took that film on, and then he went on to direct a number of romance and children's movies, and then a whole bunch of Christmas movies. Christmas Catch in 2018, Christmas with a View in 2018, a very, oh. you know yeah, these, familiar? Yeah, I got something for you along word? these lines. A very country Christmas. Seen it. A puppy for Christmas. Seen it. Uh, and uh, then something, My Dad is Scrooge from 2014 as well. So can we talk about, I mean, just the unending bridges between Christmas movies and horror movies? I think that's a, well, sure, I guess. It does It does need to end at some point. Though. Constantina Mantelos. Uh-huh. We were trying to figure out what she had done. Sure, and she's the, uh, she plays. Christmas Crush. Oh, she was in Christmas Crush? Yeah. See, a lot of Justin G. Dick, Justin, Justin, God damn it. Just I gotta get some sleep at some point. Justin, ju Justin D. Dick. A lot of his films, uh, I believe we may have covered on the Most Wonderful Pod of the Year, the Audio Wool original program. So I'm pretty unfamiliar with his work, but you seem to have seen quite a bit of them. Well, at least some. Yeah. Christmas in Paris. You see that one? Baby in a Manger. 
Love by no, accident. I, don't do those ones. I, I think he really put in the work. I mean, for a guy who approached a, a producer with a, a horror script, she tossed him a monkey and a soccer ball. You know, he he took a lot for the team. Maybe he just loves Christmas. I don't know. I, I just I saw a film of his that uh, came out in 2017 on his IMDb called A Witch's Ball, and I was like, ooh, maybe he did get the chance to do a horror film clicked on it it's a uh, comedy family adventure film but a young witch who is ready to to jump in feet first into the witching world but not before leaping over some medical hurdles along the way magical not medical (laughs) that's a different movie quite but yeah uh kelly you were talking about constantina uh she plays she was Shannon Becker. We we open the film, cold open, mundane conversation between two uh, older folks. Two grandparents. And talking about the uh, length of a hem on a pair of pants. Yeah, because he doesn't want to look like a rapper. Right off the top, I got to say, Henry Walsh, played by Julian Richings, cool dude, wardrobe in this film, killer. Great. Sharp-dressed doctor. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, that's very true. And his wife, Audrey, played by Sheila McCarthy, also incredible performance. These two, for some reason, right off the bat, very likable. Very likable. But then they do something right off the bat that makes you feel like you shouldn't probably like them. Yeah. Uh, they uh, they drag Shannon Becker in from the outside and hit, mm-hmm. her in the, and hit her in the head with a hammer. Yeah. But be careful about the baby. Oh, of course. You got to watch the baby. They drag her into a basement. Watch the baby. And when she comes to, Audrey is sitting in front of her and she reads a little prepared statement, which I think uh, I've got it right here. Hello, my name is Audrey and this is my husband, Henry. And she says that part before Henry's there. So she pauses awkwardly and looks and says, he'll be be right here. The stairs take a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, First and foremost, Shannon, we would like to apologize for scaring you this morning. But after much deliberation, we feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. Hmm. By now, you've recognized my husband, Henry, or Dr. Walsh, as you would better know him. Dr. Walsh will continue to care for you from our home. Be careful who you pick for your OB. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Don't let him take a picture of you when you're crying. That's weird. Awkward. You should know that we mean you and your unborn child no harm. While we apologize for what we must do, please make no mistake. We must do it. And we will not waver, no matter how much you beg. And please don't cry, as we all have feelings. Do you understand? You get a lot of character development in that, because although they are the antagonists, the villains in the story, they're they're very human and, again, very likable. Uh, eh, okay. They're going through something. They're, I was going to say they're well-intentioned, but they aren't. They're being extremely selfish. No, they're not at all. Bad folks. And this this is where the, the film flips supernatural real quick. Shannon looks up to see Jackson, played by Daxton William Lund. She sees him. Is he playing in the room? Is that right? Yeah, which is that. So let me just say that that part confused me right off the bat. Yeah, right, right off, off the bat. The bat immediately off the bot i was confused i was like okay well if he's a is he a ghost is he already like present yeah, what is this i didn't I, I and even after finishing the movie you and i should probably chat about this because mm-hmm. i'm still a little confused yeah i get it he he makes himself known to people he likes i believe he is a ghost because he uh he does have a large wound to the back of his head why do ghosts when they come back they always have the uh the wounds of their uh of their death 
Good question. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe. Well, or in in this later on in this movie, they just keep inflicting the <laughs> oh, wounds holy from their death. Crud, love it, man. Yeah, woo. So uh, this film, it does bounce back and forth in time to kind of show us like a. a, a I mean, it's not quite a record scratch. Bet you're wondering how we got here, but it does go back and forth. I mean, we come to find out that this couple lost their daughter and uh, her son in a car accident and they want to get him back via black magic it was unclear to me if they were satan worshipers before the events that transpired where they lost their loved ones versus something they discovered afterwards it seems to be afterwards because that's when they spent all the money on acquiring the different things yeah like like the uh, thousands year old book quite possibly the oldest book in the world yeah it's and there's a fun it's scene you want in your house friends Definitely i'll take it not. i'm a big fan of evil books i was thinking about this the other day there's something about it Can't, like i've got the black arts i've got a 1978 edition of the the black arts which is a pretty fun book i've read about 30 pages of because it is dry is it it is dry it is not easy to get through that kind of material and that's why i applaud ian played by josh crudas Okay, yeah, we need to talk about him a little bit. Ian, he is part of this uh, satanic, what do we, I mean, what do we call it? It's basically like a, they're in a support group setting, but it's not a support group. They're just, they're just Satanists. No, they're just Satanists. Well, but they aren't Satanists. They're Satan worshipers. We always need to be careful about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good call. Thanks for clarifying that. They worship the devil and they like uh, black magic. Okay, did you notice that in their chant, though, they distinguish between Lucifer and and satan there can somebody explain to me okay explain i thought well, uh, i thought lucifer was the the angel that became satan but apparently not i think it's very similar to the 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 father the son holy ghost kind of stuff satan is the devil my god see i'm not prepared to explain this but i know that there's a difference are they like different manifestations i i'm not even going to attempt to pull this together because i have no real idea and i know that some of our listeners are are far more knowledgeable in this than i am so and you're scared of them i'm terrified of them especially if they know more about that specific subject because they could be necromancers uh which is i guess what audrey displays to her husband in a pretty fun scene when she brings back a crow after a reading a passage from this very very old book which they're just carrying out in the he wind she should not have been doing that i mean she she was running around all morning doing that it was a bad idea <laughs> sounds like a fun morning to me really i mean why not go bring in bringing crows back to life uh vessels yeah, should have at least done it with like puppy dogs or something i mean that would be who that, wants another crow i don't know why you don't like them i'm just not a fan i guess back in the 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 house where shannon is tied up to the bed there is a little bit of magic going on a lamp carrying ghoul from hell shows up what do you think about the practical effects on that guy scared the shit out of me yeah mask felt a little stiff but it was nonetheless didn't matter it was it terrified me they do a little bit of a ceremony shannon wakes up with a, a solid blood puke which she had that that the tube up her nose i wasn't sure what was going on with that did they explain that? Um, I wasn't sure if maybe he was filling her belly up with blood, and that's why she did a blood puke. I I, I wasn't I sure if that they were trying something. to get her fluids, but I don't know. I could be wrong. Sure, it could have been that as well. But either way, she woke up tied up, blood puke, and she says, "Oh my god!" A really great throwaway line. Audrey says, "You won't find him here, sweetie." 
which is yeah yeah there were a couple points where there was reference of jesus not being welcome there Mm -hmm. there's something about old people being evil i like it it's very rosemary's baby and there's even a scene in here that reminded me a lot of uh, the omen actually really which one (laughs) the snowman the the man who shovels snow with his snowblower now now did you get my joke about sam Oh, yes, I do get that from the beginning. (laughs) Uh, It's really great because there's, I mean, Audrey and Henry, they're trying really hard to pull this together, but they're in over their heads. Way. They're having a discussion about how they need to get the snow removal guy out of there because he's going to find Shannon. The room is soundproofed, but not that soundproofed, you know. While they're discussing it, after they try to get rid of the, sh- the, the, the the guy who shovels snow, who's going through a really rough patch, uh, giving him a freebie, he looks up and inter- interrupts them and says, you did it right. Jackson's in there and he's coming back to you. And then he uh, shoves his head into the uh, snow machine, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is so omen. That's a, that's very much a, it's all for you, Damien kind of moment. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now I get what you're saying. That's fair. And things just keep getting trickier for the Walsh family. A detective, Detective Bellows, played by Lynette Ware, is hot on the trail of this missing person, and she is uh, suspicious of Henry. I think that's a fair way to put it. I don't know. What do you think about her? She's great. Yeah, she is great. She's she's obviously a really good detective, too, but uh, she should have called for backup. Because, and I mean, I only spoil this part because it's... Uh, it's kind of throwaway, and it's also a really entertaining part of the last act of the film. She, much like the snowman, succumbs to the control of whatever evil is in the house. And while she did find Shannon and she tied up Audrey, uh, when Henry came in and confronted her, she ended up shooting herself in the head. Yep. And her spirit or ghost or whatever continues to do that throughout the rest of the Just movie. Just looping. Yeah, very disturbing. Loop. Really, I mean, the first time. Not a loop you want to get stuck in ever. Just a mean movie, which I really appreciate, especially from a guy who it is mean. started off with, uh, you know, a, a, a monkey hanging from a goalie net, you know? Yeah. Uh, Ian, yeah. Ian becomes more involved. I don't know how much you want to talk more about that. Is there anything before Ian comes over that you want to mm. talk about? I, I think just the couple becomes aware that they maybe didn't know what they were doing. Like you said, mm-hmm. they're in over their head and they have let through a hell of a lot more uh-huh. than uh, just Jackson. Yeah, as time goes on, they continue to be <laughs> spooked by ghosts in their house there's a really fun flosser which i i wasn't sure was the flosser a different ghost or was it supposed to be audrey i couldn't tell it was supposed to be audrey i think yeah I, I, but none of the other because ghosts then were. there was one shot where it showed the audrey with the halloween ghost mm-hmm. which had significance you know was that audrey or audrey's daughter as a youngster i thought that that's what that was she said my daughter used the ghost to- was audrey's daughter as yeah, a youngster, yeah, yeah but that's my point that's oh. why they, it was showing the flosser and the ghost together because it was audrey oh yes you're right yeah 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 i mean the floss spook was great because henry wakes oh, up god you start seeing the things falling on the floor i'm like oh, those fuck, were those teeth. teeth those, those are teeth. definitely yeah, teeth. falling out of a head which is pretty incredible flossing right out Gross. listen i sleep with my mouth open i have a, a gum problem and whenever i go to the dentist i feel exactly like that ghost it's just um do you yeah, and they feel sorry for me because my dentist knows that I have that issue. You see, I could go into it. When I was younger, I used to have really bad tonsil and adenoid issues. I used to always get strep throat and they used to always be swollen. Did so I, I cannot breathe through my nose. 
because of just a hib- habitually never doing it. So in the night, I sleep with my mouth open, and then it gets really. That's yeah, bad. It's not great. Uh, not ideal. But really, uh, another ghost that I think we absolutely need to talk about is bendy body under under the bed oh the backwards bending Uh plastic bag over your head yeah and i I gotta say backwards bending bag head he's a bit of a pretzel jack yeah and you know why that is oh he is you know why Why? that is it's the same actor same actor troy james it is pretzel I mean, not Jack. that many people are able to do that, I would imagine. Pretty incredible contortionist. He uses a lot of those Pretzel Jack moves. And I think that if going back, Kelly, you would love to watch that one more time and be like, yep, that's him. PJ, my boy. Ugh. Yeah. A murder of crows gather outside. Ian becomes more of a figure in this. And I don't think we should talk more about it. Even though Ian's performance, Josh Crudis, is a, he does a really great job. I, I think that that's probably where we should tune out here, right? I think you're right. I, there's, I mean, I feel like there are spoilers every step along the way. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to spoil anymore. For sure. I mean, we, we walked through some kills that were pretty important, significant to the plot. But I, I don't think Ian needs to be spoiled i agree i agree that seems fair so kelly what what are your final thoughts on this thing i guess i hadn't heard much about it and then as i was watching it i was doing some goggling you know Mm -hmm. i i like to search things put your goggles on yes i i thought it was really good i thought that the acting was really solid i thought well all three primary characters and then the two secondary characters being ian and the snowblower Mm -hmm. all five of those people really made one hell of a cast though i haven't seen anything else that this gentleman has done uh in the horror genre i've seen plenty he's done in the christmas genre seems like it i'm hopeful that he continues i guess dabbling on both sides of the fence because this was worth watching and i bet that his christmas skills would translate to another really solid horror movie i also feel like i should go back and watch some more movies that both sheila mccarthy and julian richings are in because they were spectacular in this obviously they must have some kind of a long-term hollywood career because you don't get those kind of acting chops just rolling into acting in your grandparent years so anything for jackson it's a hell of a watch it's one of those things that when people ask me oh should i get shutter yeah you should because you get access to things like this it's pretty good this isn't a throwaway movie in a rather throwaway year so i give anything for jackson 8.1 crocheted handcuff covers that's good damn Fuck, I didn't even think about that. Shit. Yeah, I completely agree. Right off the bat, uh, Sheila McCarthy and Julian Richings, their performances were uh, magnetic. The story is really interesting. They don't waste any time getting into it. I do think the back and forth nature of explaining things was kind of clunky at times. Oh, see, I liked it because you weren't sure. Sorry. No, you're fine. I want to know what you think about that. I just, I thought that it revealed it more slowly, which was, to me, was really fun. Mm-hmm. But what what happened, though, is it, it didn't really, it was almost like the flashbacks were more of the movie than the where we are now, which I don't know if that matters at all. The spooks, it was great. It was very much like a, a, a haunted house type setting when things got scary, but wasn't a terribly scary film. It was more funny and witty and uh, charming. I think this is a great horror for the holidays, even though they never explicitly talk about Christmas. 
Yeah, I uh, Julian Richings. Uh, he was in uh, he was in Man of Steel, but it looks like Sheila McCarthy is more known. She was a, a, a character named Judith in The Day After Tomorrow, as well as uh, Samantha Coleman in Die Hard Two. So she's been doing. Yeah, it for I a saw while. that. Which I mean, obviously, this time of year, most of us are pretty familiar with Die Hard. But ready I, for Die I, Hard? I, yeah, a Christmas movie. Yeah, I very rarely watch Die Hard Two, so perhaps I need to go back and. So Constantina, I mean, she does a great job of being completely horrified by what's going on. And uh, uh, yeah, performances all around. I can't wait for you guys to meet Ian if you haven't seen this yet. He is a real character. And the snowman feels so terribly sorry for him going through a rough time. And, uh, you know, around the holiday season, that's uh, even worse. But anything for Jackson, I'm going to give it 6.8 Murders of Crows. Well, that, oh, no, that's that, a good one. Well, I mean, that would be uh, just maybe just crows making up a murder at that point. I, I was going to say that's all. I mean, it's, it's a, a lot, lot of crows. crows. If you've got that many murders of crows. And those are our thoughts on Anything for Jackson, which again, streaming exclusively on Shudder. So check it out. Totally worth it. So much there for you to watch. And once you have seen this film, let us know what you thought on uh, social media at Fright Day on Twitter and Instagram. You could leave a comment below this episode in the show notes at FrightDay.com. Send us an email, contact at FrightDay.com. Or we can have a discussion about it in either the Facebook group or the Discord server. We're back. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, we are back. Did you, are, you, are, you, are you in there yet? No, I have. I just, I don't. I, I miss our friends, but... Well, get in oh. there. You got to make another fake okay. profile on Facebook like I did, and you got to get back okay, in the Facebook okay, group because okay. we... I don't know what they're doing over there at Facebook, but the group is apparently still active, and they were randomly assigning members admin access, which is so weird. Very strange. Uh, yeah. So weird. But we're back. Um, and if you like our show and want to help us make it even better, you can grab something spooky at shop.frightday.com. It's too late. The holidays are over, but uh, I know you got some cash from Santa Claus. And uh, if you want to spend it supporting us and looking cool, I have no problem with that. Well, of course. Shop.frightday.com. Not going to put up a fight. New Year's resolution, wear more Fright Day. And I'm going to be honest. It's the morning now. We recorded the other stuff earlier and... Uh, Right now, sipping on. So tired. I well, yeah. It's been it's been a week. Uh, I uh, but thank goodness for the 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 energy provided by Spring Hill Jack Coffee. Yeah, I'm I'm drinking some cold brew I made with some Spring Hill Jack. Oh, really, right now, sipping on. Yeah. Wow. And so, yeah, we may be fueled by them, but uh, it's the members of the Fright Day Society who keep this operation funded. We got a couple new folks who have joined up recently. Who are now members of the Friday Society at patreon.com slash Friday. I would like to give a a huge welcome to Danny C. And what's what's their initiation? Okay, uh, let's see. It's the new year. Not yet, but soon. It's almost the new year. Do some research on yeti it's snowy out very nice report any any yeti sightings from the last six months and uh jared g welcome to the friday society jared g um yes welcome i would where's jared g from i will never tell you the location of these people especially on a podcast jared needs to report any spooky story that he's experienced himself 
So like a true tale. So these I'm are... demanding a true tale from, from Jared. <laughs> demanding. All right. Well, I was demanding. Ex- at least we're not making you a shave your head or. No, uh, no, no, no. None of that. No. Give, give us your routing numbers or anything like that. But yeah. Nope. Nope. Just, just, just a story. It's okay. <sighs> If uh, if you I mean if you're interested in joining the Friday Society, there's plenty more for you to feast upon there. If you want new episodes each week, you'll love Behind the Screams. Uh, I know we're working right now on a smiley face killer. Not only review of the new film written by Brett Easton Ellis, uh, but also the concept itself. Lots of stuff yeah. there. I think there's over 30 episodes of Behind the Screams, and there's also bonus episodes of Captain Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies, Byron's Serial Corner, The Writer's Room, Toast to Toast PM with Wine Kelly, Cinema Autopsy, which we are going to be doing Fat Man next week. Can't wait. That's going to be just a huge God. bummer. Oh. But members also get early access to new products as well as members-only releases, which I know, Kelly, you have seen. Uh, we can't talk about them because they're a secret, but they are quite fun. I know what they are. I have worn them. Uh, and yeah, you get 15% off everything. And uh, if I'm being honest, it's the it's the, the New Year's right around the corner. It's always a great time for reflection. And, you know, you guys, uh, your support on Patreon is, uh, I'm not going to lie, life-changing. It is. 100%. I love doing this stuff. There's nothing more that, that I want to do with my life but sit around and talk spooky with y'all. So as we inch closer to phase three, which is our bi-weekly Twitch broadcast, it's uh, coming up. I mean, we're getting closer to making that a possibility. It, uh, you know, it just means a lot to me, guys. Um, very excited. Love doing this Aww. stuff. Means a lot to me too. Just, we need to make sure we're steering Byron away from all that Q stuff. <laughs> got I to him. haven't talked year. about it at all on the show. Just a lot everywhere else. Most helpful of all, uh, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, whatever you're using. That's the best way to get us in new ears and up charts. Whew, boy, Kelly. Yes? Are you going to be open in presents? What's going on? I'm going to be wrapping presents, then I'm going to be opening presents, then I'm going to be working on Puckwedgie's birthday party. Right around the corner. Baby Yoda birthday party. Is that what the theme I is? I refuse to say Grogu. Oh, come on. It's a great name. Yeah, meh. Yeah, but then I'll also be on Twitter at Kelly Friday. You can email me, Kelly at Friday.com. You can try and find me on Instagram, I guess. Um, okay. I hope all of you have a safe and healthy end to your year. I really, really do. And I'm excited for all of the fun things that we're going to do together in 2021. And I'm at Byron McCoy on Twitter and Instagram. ByronFriday.com is my email address. Oh, and until next week, when we're going to be covering a film that we missed this year. We're digging deep. We're making sure we didn't miss something. So I'm not, I'm not certain what it is yet. But until then. Oh, perfect. Great. Okay, good. I'm Byron. I'm Kelly. Don't pierce that veil. And stay still. You've been listening to an Audio Wool original produced by Byron McCoy. Theme music provided by Cemeteries. For more programs like this, visit audiowool.co.